You got over your post-COVID brain fog. Don't think I've ever had any. Well, I had it. Did you? Yeah, last week I um, I did the newsletter, got it all ready, and then decided at the last minute to change just one line. Hmm. Went back in, edited it, and then forgot to resend. Oh no! It was only I got an email on uh, Friday morning from a reader saying, "Oh, have you stopped doing your newsletter? Because I really look forward to it." I went, oh, "Oh God, it hasn't gone out." Well, because I actually got the newsletter the other day, and I thought, "Oh, yeah, this is a bit weird. Why are we getting it today?" Because of brain fog. Oh, no. Okay, right. We'd better crack on. I'm Jimmy Thompson. I write the flat chat column for the Australian Financial Review. And I'm Sue Williams, and I write about property for domain. And this is the flat chat wrap. Remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about David Chandler and how he was in danger of moving into Peter Ryan territory. Oh, right. Being white-handed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it started. There's a, an article you pointed out in the Australian newspaper that he is being investigated by the Fair Trading Department. His boss, Eleni Petinos, the mm. Fair Trading and Small Business Minister. Sorry, I should correct myself. She's Small Business First. Yes. And then a bit of Fair Trading. Mm. added on um yeah because of a speech that he made uh where he said he'd provided a list to the banks of all the dodgy certifiers right and saying and that's probably beyond his remit is it well he was saying at the time that these are people who will probably never work again mm. because they've been shown to be dodgy mm. and of course this is set off alarms because it's much more important for dodgy developers, sorry, sorry, dodgy certifiers to be protected than it is for people who buy apartments to be protected <laughs> from dodgy mm. certifiers. Well, dodgy certifiers have more access to the funds that you need to go to court to... Yeah. Yeah. Well, dodgy certifiers are uh, employed by dodgy developers. Mm. And so this is where somebody, and I don't even know who it was in Parliament, I don't know which party they were members of, I... I don't really care, to be honest. It's just sort of typical of, oh, he said this thing. The thing is that nobody, he has said this, and there's no doubt that he said it. He was recorded saying it, and I think we might have spoken about it before at a meeting that journalists were not invited to. And he said this thing, but has he actually done it? Is there any evidence? Has anybody seen the list? Has any, anybody from the banks come up and said, oh, yeah, here's the list of dodgy developers? Do you think he was maybe just firing a shot across the <laughs> sort of certifiers? It's not the developers, it's certifiers. Do you think he might just be firing a shot across their bows saying, look, I'm coming for you? Well, that would be a wise thing to do, wouldn't it, really? Well, I think it's yeah. absolutely valid. Mm. You know, but unless somebody can come up with this list that he spoke of, all, all he's been guilty of is a bit of exaggeration and telling a couple of fibs, mm. which, as we know, politicians never do. <laughs> yeah, there was an interesting um, interview in the Sydney Morning Herald this week with Nicholas Cowdery, the former Deputy <laughs> Director of Public Prosecutions, oh, yeah. sort of saying about how corrupt politicians have become, really. Yeah. And, uh, you know, pork barrelling and yeah. that kind of stuff. And so, nice mm. jobs in New York. 
Well, yes, except that didn't quite come off, did it? No. The fair trading minister, Ms. Pettinos, was previously notorious for having vomited in the back of John Barawaro's mm. car. Oh, yes, there was a link between them, So there's them, a wasn't connection. There? Yeah. There's a connection. <laughs> Do you think he'll, this, this nonsense about pursuing him over something he said in a speech, do you think it will actually, could he just turn around and say, stuff it? Oh, gosh, you'd really hope not, because he's got another year to go on his contract, yeah, hasn't he, because yeah. he's extended it. And um, he's really cleaned up the industry, and yeah. it's kind of brought back a lot of more confidence in the apartment industry. I mean, in Victoria, they've never had the kind of problems that we've had in New South Wales, because they don't have um, self-certification. Mm. Um, so in Victoria... Confidence hasn't been a problem, but in New South Wales, it really has. You know, yeah. we've had all those scandals about um, buildings cracking and. Well, know, see, the thing, one of the other things in Victoria is that they have had for a long time a 10 year warranty mm. on the builder. Mm. So, whatever happened with the developer or, you know, the Phoenix thing, which also doesn't happen to the same extent there, the, the builder would have to come up and fix or mm. pay for problems to be fixed. Of course, New South Wales being fundamentally corrupt, uh, they, that has always been avoided. But now David Chandler's come in and the laws have been changed at his behest. And now people, builders and developers are being held accountable for the work that they do. Mm. It would be an absolute tragedy if he was driven out. I mean, this story about him being, you know, having said this thing, it, the politicians need to, get behind him mm. and just say, look, it's whatever he said, unless there's evidence that he has acted wrongly, then just let the guy get on with his job. Yeah, absolutely. And it was interesting, in the news this week was also the results of the census. Oh, yeah. And they're showing that apartment dwellers are becoming much more numerous, really. Yes. Um, this is found, good news for us. This is yeah, more fodder for us. Absolutely. But they were saying that more than half of the dwellings in the inner city of Sydney these days are now flats or apartments, um, compared with um, 31% across Greater Sydney and 14% nationally. So the figure has really gone up. Yeah. Um, in, in the area of city and inner south, which is from the CBD in Sydney to Alexandria and Mascot, around 70% of the dwellings are now flats and apartments. Well, it's yeah, a lot, isn't it? It's a lot. It's not really a surprise, though, because you drive out to the airport or drive down through that area, you don't see an awful lot of houses. No. And you do see an awful lot of apartment blocks. Yeah, but I tend to think, oh, maybe it's the apartments are just built next to the roads and the houses are hiding away behind them, but obviously mm. not. In the eastern suburbs of Sydney, there's 58% are now apartments and, and flats. And Sydney's North Shore, it's now 46%. Right. And yeah. I think the same statistics, didn't it say that half the high-rise residents in Australia are in Sydney? No. It, half of the residents in Sydney who live in apartments live in buildings that are nine stories or higher. Right. Mm. So we're moving away from the little... Uh, little block. Walk up two-story Yeah, exactly. Things. Yeah. Yeah. But they're becoming... We're becoming much more high-rise, densely populated cities. Mm. Um yeah, I guess a lot of those smaller blocks from the 50s and 60s are now being demolished and being replaced by bigger blocks. Yeah. Or they're being extended or they're being added to, 
which is the same thing, really. I don't know if and, the, um, the the uh, what we used to call the the forced evacuation, the forced sale mm. of blocks, hasn't really happened to the extent we all imagined it would. No, surely it would. Um, maybe maybe COVID slowed everything yeah, down because yeah. I think it was building up momentum before that. Yeah. And maybe it will start again. Yeah. And, I mean, it's hard because when housing prices were really on the up, then it became really worthwhile doing. But now housing prices are dropping a little bit and softening. Maybe it's not such a, a viable proposition for a lot of buildings. All right. When we come back, we're going to talk about a story we've both been looking at uh, to write this week, which is about telcos bullying their way into apartment blocks. That's after this. So we got an email from our friends at the Owners Corporation Network saying that something that was happening for a while and seemed to have died out, but it's happening again, and that is telcos writing to apartment blocks and saying, we want to come and install our broadband service into your building and you can't stop us. And a lot of buildings, well, it depends It depends on how savvy the Strata Committee members are some of them are just going, oh, my goodness, the law says we've got to let these people in. Mm, it's some, some kind of glitch in the law, isn't it? There wasn't, it wasn't foreseen that this was ever going to happen. But now they're saying there's this, this gap in the law, which means that telcos can kind of insist on coming in and yeah. use the common property to improve communication within a building. Yeah. And um, politicians haven't kind of moved to close that gap, I don't think. Because they don't care. Um, well, well, maybe they're not aware. Perhaps oh, maybe it'd be worth been, us letting some of the some of them know. Well, they, they've known about it for three years, apparently, because they've been looking at it. Ah, yeah. But you uh, heard about three buildings in the same area that had a very different response to this bullying letter from a telco. That's right. It was just um, it's a big complex, and they've got three stratas within the complex. Yeah. One strata engaged with the telco and said, oh, what, what, what do you want to do? What's, what are you talking about? Yeah. And because they started talking to the telco, the telco took that on board and then started saying, well, we're going to come in next week and um, we're going to install our, our internet yeah. system. And the building said, oh, well, you know, is this right? And they said, yes, we'll refer it to the telecommunications ombudsman, which is kind of – very much on the side of the telecommunications industry. And the ombudsman said, yes, yes, they can come in. So now they're in this situation where the telco plans to come in and do this work, and they're really upset. They just don't want the work done. They've got certain architectural guidelines on their buildings, and they don't want, you know, all this junk on their roof, and they don't want want it. And haven't they just put down a new membrane on the roof? That's right, and they're worried it's going to get damaged as well. Um, so they're kind of wondering what to do, whereas the second strata just told them to nick off. Yeah. They never heard another thing. And the third strata just ripped up the letter and have had nothing to do with them, haven't returned any calls or anything. And it seems that the telco is backed off from them. Right. So it's just real bullying tactics Absolutely. from these telcos. And if they can engage a strata... Yeah. And, you know, it's really hard for the strata. If you get a letter saying we're entitled to do something... Yeah, courting the law. Yeah, you obviously start thinking, well, they must be right. Yeah. And then you have to start engaging lawyers, perhaps. And yeah. then it, the bills are, can be huge yeah. and it can be really complex and exhausting and hard. So I remember when this came up a couple of years ago and NBN was putting cable in everywhere. 
and telcos were turning up and saying, you've got to let us into your building. And one of the problems was that they were they're putting in the, installing their own equipment and it was stopping other people's equipment coming in. Mm. I remember specifically Telstra had a, a special system that actually did a noise reduction, and we're talking electronic noise mm. reduction, on their cabling to make their cables faster. But then other telcos were coming in and adding a signal to the same cable that was destroying the... Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah. The, the Telstra one. And it also means everybody else can't choose their own provider, doesn't yeah. it? They just have to go with that one provider. So it's kind of like a form of embedded networks almost, isn't Very it? Very really? much so. Because it drives out all competitors. And that means that when they actually have to pay for the contracts, I mean, the contracts could go up and up and up, and they can't get a competitor into tender. Yeah. So looking at what strata schemes can do, apart from ripping up the letter, I mean, the first thing is that these telcos cannot come and bash down your front door mm. and and put their tradies in. They would have to take you to court and, and get court orders allowing them in there. On what grounds could you say you're not allowed in? Well, every building has its own responsibility to protect common property. Mm. So you could be able to say to them, well, if you insist on coming in here, we need a detailed plan of what you plan to do with the common property. We need to know who the tradies are that you're going to use. We need to know that they have experience in strata buildings. We need to know what they're going to do about our existing infrastructure. We need guarantees that it will not interfere with any other telco system. And I think once you put down those six or seven different demands... It will start frightening them off. Yeah, absolutely. They'll go for the low-hanging fruit. They will go for the, the smaller buildings where they don't have knowledgeable strata committees and just bully them into allowing them to do. And then the strata committee then has to deal with the consequences of people who are saying, well, I'm on such and such a telco for my ISP is such and such a company. And now this other company's come in and ripped out their equipment. Mm, yep. And that comes back to the committee. Well, what are we going to do? Mm. And try chasing uh, a multinational telecommunications company for damage that they've done to your building and see how far you get mm. so i would say by all means talk to your your lawyers but when they come a knocking tell them to get stuffed mm. and wait until they come back with a court order and then start talking about the detail of what they plan to do mm. good idea that's my non-legal advice <laughs> I just want to take a moment to talk about something that uh, I wrote about in the Australian Financial Review and which is also in the Flat Chat website uh, this week. And that's about how short-term holiday rentals have affected the affordable housing market. Now, there's a couple of reports have been done um, that we refer to that show quite conclusively that putting apartments into holiday rentals actually takes them out of the residential rental market. As if anybody needed to prove that. I mean, it's simple logic. These apartments, if they're no longer being used for residential rents, then they're not no longer available. And they push rents up and they force people out of the popular areas uh, where holidaymakers also go and into, well, wherever they can find housing, and even to the extent of people living in cars and tents. So I got a letter, an email from someone 
Um, I'm not going to name names because we don't, but uh, this person has come up with what I think is an intriguing and really interesting solution to this problem. Now, according to Inside Airbnb, and I refer to this in the story, there are approximately 36,000 entire homes in Sydney and Melbourne alone that are currently available for short-term holiday rentals. Those places could be available for residential rents. So when you're looking at a a shortage of 150,000 homes in the whole of Australia, a big chunk of those holiday rentals could be back in the market and would certainly make things easier for people who are struggling to find a home. Now, this person who wrote to me has come up with a brilliant solution, I think, which is if you don't allow people who have put their homes or their properties or their investments into Airbnb or stays or any of the other short-term holiday rentals, if you don't allow them to claim negative gearing, then you balance the playing field. You make it a fairer system for everybody. And then the government is not subsidizing taking properties out of the residential rental market. And the genius of this idea is that it would be a federal government decision. I mean, you're not going to get the states to make any radical decisions on short-term holiday rents at any point in the immediate future. They all want tourists to come back and they don't care basically who suffers as a consequence. But the federal government, which has been tasked with helping to ease the housing crisis and they're offering grants and whatnot to do that, They can say, well, hey, you put your property on short-term renting, you don't get your negative gearing. We are not going to subsidize taking residential properties out of the market so that you can make a bit of extra money. And we're not talking about mums and dads, as they love to do, uh, as the short-term holiday renting platforms love to do, this whole myth about people sharing their homes. If you're sharing your home, if you're letting somebody rent a room in your house, that's one thing, and that's a completely different thing. But putting your whole rented or invested home on the market as short-term holiday rental is taking it out of the residential market, and that should not be being subsidised by negative gearing. When we come back, we're going to talk about a couple of relatively minor issues in strata schemes, but uh, kind of annoying. Mm. That's after this. So I got a curious post on the forum this week. Oh, yeah? It took me a while to get to the bottom of it, but it turned out that this committee member had got himself elected at AGM and then promptly announced that he was going on holiday for a year. I say he, they were going on holiday for a year and asked the committee to approve another committee member carrying his vote for the year. So two votes for the... Two votes for one person, one person who's got himself elected and then immediately headed overseas on a an extended holiday. That's awful because presumably he would have known, he would, or she, whoever, yeah, they, they would have known that they were going overseas. You would think. For a year. Yeah. That takes a bit of planning, doesn't it, really? It does. So why on earth would they get themselves selected? So they could give their mate an extra vote. Oh, maybe they were, it was a kind of because they wanted to push a certain topic or an issue or something. Or more likely that they just wanted to make sure that nobody else could come in oh. and vote for things that they didn't want. 
And that's terrible for the rest of the committee. They're having to do the work of maybe nine or seven people, but with fewer people. But the committee could always say no. Can they? They, You know, any um, substitution has to be approved by the committee. So you you think that the committee had a majority of, this person had a majority of of supporters on the committee anyway, and they just wanted to hold their majority. Mm. So they were... They say, well, we'll we'll approve this, mm. and that gives us a majority vote. That and then we can't have these annoying people with alternative views having any sway in the building whatsoever. Mm. It's hugely anti-democratic mm. and slightly corrupt, mm. even though there's probably no money involved. So how do we look? And there's a section of the Act, Section Two Three Eight, that allows you to apply to the tribunal to have somebody kicked off the committee. Now you can get them kicked off the committee for it specifies certain things like for breaking bylaws and mm. uh, not acting within with the integrity or within the best interests of the building blah 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 it's all a bit woolly mm. but that's not the only reasons that people can be kicked off and i think our correspondent should go to the tribunal or at least start mediation mm. and say i want this person removed from the from the committee because they never intended to serve mm. on the committee. They misled the people who voted for them. Get them off the committee. They can always stand again when they come back next year. Mm. I think that would be the way. I think so. That sounds a good idea because at the vote of the committee to decide whether or not they'd la- allow the person to do it, presumably that person can still vote and would still have a majority. So that's the only <clears> path they can go. And yes, and the, and the other thing is, I think if they go to mediation, the committee might think this is a bit embarrassing. Mm, let's let's just rescind the yeah. permission, yeah. and then that means that they don't have to fill that position mm. with another person if mm. they do that. If they're smart, they'll just go. We're rescinding that permission yeah. for it to have the substitute member. Mm. If they're not very smart, they'll probably try and fight it at the tribunal, spend money on lawyers, and I would think there's a very good chance they'll lose. Mm. But that would have to be a really dumb course of action, I think. Yeah. But then strata committees are not immune to <laughs> dumbness. <laughs> and the other piece of news this week is that everybody was getting a bit upset about the hub, this New South Wales strata mm-hmm. data hub, because they said that chairs and secretaries had to provide a personal phone number that they could be contacted on as well as their email addresses. And now they've stepped back from that because that, those numbers and those contact details were going to be available to the everybody, yeah. everybody in the building, residents, tenants and owners in the building. And they've now come back and said, okay, we still need your contact number, but we won't be making that available mm. to oh, everybody. Okay. That's for us to be able to contact you rather than everybody in the building. They still have their email addresses, mm. which... It's a bit less intrusive, sure. I think. Yeah, okay. So that's a bit of news from this week. But the hub has started. The SCA, New South Wales, are providing a kind of kit for people to to help them load up their information. You have until December mm. to get it done before they start issuing fines and things like that. Okay. But um, the process, there was a bit of a rumour that they're IT systems weren't up to the job. Mm. Um, so 
but that has not yet been confirmed. But we shall see. I mean, you've got six months. Hmm. should be able to fix it all. Switch it off, switch it back on again. It will all be fine. (laughs) Okay. I think that's us for this week. Okay. Thanks for coming in and bringing all those statistics, which I'm still confused about. And (laughs) I'll have a look at the paper. Um, Good luck to David Chandler. Um, I hope uh, he gets some support from the people who appreciate the terrific job he's done. And uh, get your info to the hub. Fantastic. By December. All right. Thanks, Sue. (laughs) Cheers, Jimmy. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Flat Chat Wrap podcast. You'll find links to the stories and other references on our website, flatchat.com.au. And if you haven't already done so, you can subscribe to this podcast completely free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcatcher. Just search for Flat Chat Wrap with a W, click on subscribe, and you'll get this podcast every week without even trying. Thanks again. Talk to you again next week.